So today we're going to be talking about respiratory disorders in children. We are going to be talking about um, three disorders. One, the first one is SID. So unfortunately, we kind of have to start off with SID. Um, and then we're going to hit asthma and CF. And we'll spend a lot more time in asthma and CF just because there's a lot more medications and kind of like pathophysiology that the nurse can intervene on. And so um, unfortunately with SIDS, it's all about prevention and teaching as you guys probably know already. Um, so we'll continue letting people, I'm recording. Um, so we're gonna start by talking about sudden unexpected infant death. And so in Hockenberry, it kind of delineates SIDS out a little bit for you. And so this is what it's talking about. Sudden unexpected infant death is like any a death of an infant, that's the first year of life, you know, that is not expected as, as you can see. And so um, this is a really good YouTube video. I think it's a, it was like a press conference whenever they did AAP uh, recommendations. And um, this is a pediatrician who actually lost his infant to SIDS because he was trying to give his um, wife a break. His wife was, you know, had been up all night and uh, he tried to give the wife a break, took the infant out on the couch. He ended up falling asleep. The infant fell asleep on him. And um, unfortunately, the infant passed away of SIDS. And so I put this in here just because uh, I guess to make the point that SIDS really transcends all socioeconomic um, levels. It transcends all levels of education. Um, Obviously, this guy's a pediatrician and their job is to coach and prevent SIDS and, you know, their patient population and keep their patients safe. And this can happen, um, e you know, not easily, but it can happen to anybody. And so I'm sure that this was like, you know, the, the person that you would expect it to happen to least, which is why I included it. If you want to watch it, uh, feel free to. We're not, we don't have time to do that today. Um, there are three categories of sudden unexpected infant death. So you you've heard of SIDS. Um, SIDS is confirmed with an autopsy. That's kind of the thing that makes it different. And so there are times where a patient, a person, an infant will pass away in that first year of life and the parents do not, cannot bring themselves to do an autopsy. Kind of, um, you know, you can imagine that if this happened to a baby that you knew or your baby, that that could be difficult to wrap your head around. And um, that's certainly true. They're grieving a lot. And it's a sudden death. And so um, it's not like these kids, the thing that kind of differentiates them is that they don't have any um, identifiable medical cause that would lead up to the death. They just, it happens. And so there are times where patients uh, or parents of the infant do not want an autopsy performed. And so it then gets um, classified as something different, right? Like it may get, it may not be, um, uh, sudden infant death. So um, I guess what I'm saying is if the infant dies and there's no identifiable cause after the autopsy, then that would be true SIDS. Okay. So they have no idea why the infant died. It truly was just a sudden infant death with no identifiable cause. Even though we did an autopsy, the autopsy still couldn't confirm a cause that would be um, classified as SIDS. There are times where, um, like I said, there's no autopsy performed. And so that would be an unknown cause. And then there's times where there's a lot of evidence that it was actually suffocation and strangulation. All of these different things 
get categorized under sudden unexpected infant death, okay? Any questions about this? I feel like sometimes this tricks people up a little bit. Anyone? So what's the difference between sudden infant death and unknown cause? Is it the same? Sudden infant death is where they've performed a, an autopsy and like after a medical examiner has inspected the body inside and out, there's nothing wrong with the brainstem. There's no heart, congenital heart defect that could have caused it. There's no lung issue. And so unknown cause would be whenever the parents typically decline an autopsy or there wasn't an autopsy performed for another reason. Okay, thank you. Yeah, of course. Anyone else have any questions about this? This can be kind of confusing. Or, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Ashley. Um, for the suffocation, um, mm -hmm. would you also have to do an autopsy, like for the uh, hypoxia portion? Yeah, the only, okay. I believe so. And um, I believe the only time, I mean, the thing is, is like if it's suffocation and strangulation, it's a little bit more obvious. Like you'll go in and there's, um, you know, Maybe there's like their face down, like that pediatrician woke up and like, it was pretty clear that the patient had uh, suffocated. Um, so that would be, sometimes they don't need an autopsy to confirm what happened, it's clear. There's another situation that I can think of, of a friend of mine who was a nurse and her second child passed away and um, she had a home birth, the baby, was really, really like low birth weight. It was a term baby, but really low birth weight, like about five pounds. And, um, and that's, they, they had the baby in uh, its nursery and they were taking a nap and they woke up from their nap and the baby had passed away. And in that situation, it was a safe sleep environment. And so they did an autopsy and that was classified as a true SID, like a sudden infant death. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yes, thank you. Yeah, this is kind of morbid to talk about, isn't it? I'm sorry. I'm sorry this is how we are like the first thing we're hitting off with. But okay, so this is kind of the breakdown of all of those things. So you can see here that 25% of sudden unexpected infant deaths are this suffocation and strangulation. There's 43% that is a true SIDS case where like there the baby passes away, there's no identifiable medical cause. And, you know, it was not an obvious strangulation or suffocation issue. And then 32% of these cases are where there's an autopsy withheld that can't help us conclusively figure out if it was strangulation, suffocation, or, you know, a true SIDS case. Um, so 3,500 cases in the United States every year. And then this always happens. Any, any death without a medical reason um, you know, gets classified as SUDS under the age of 12 months old. You know, these rates really drop off after the first three months of life. Like, this happens a lot in the first, you know, two, three months when the baby is really, really little. And then um, as that baby gets closer to 12 months, this, this rate of sudden unexpected infant death really drops off quite a bit. And that has a lot to do with um, the infant maturing and, you know, being able to lift its head and kind of cry out whenever it, it can't breathe and is becoming hypoxic and things like that. So there's risk factors for sudden unexpected infant death. And so at this point forward, just kind of think of all three of these things as the same thing. Okay, sudden unexpected infant death. So risk factors for sudden unexpected infant death are maternal tobacco and alcohol use. 
of course, unsafe sleep practices, right? And we're going to spend a ton of time talking about that today. Um, low birth weight and preterm babies are higher risk than firm babies and babies that are normal birth weight. Low APGAR scores, do you guys know what's an APGAR score? Who can tell me? It's basically the infant mortality score. So it tells us the appearance, their like, uh, the, their pulse, their respirations, what they look like at birth. Yes, we do it at birth and then what, like five or 10 minutes later, right? Five minutes later. And then if it's below seven, we do it until we get it above seven. Look at how much you've learned, Angelica. All of that tuition money and family-focused nursing is really paying off. Um, yeah, okay. Siblings that are SIDS victims, that's pretty unfortunate. Male gender, and then unfortunately, this there's a lot of disparities with sudden unexpected infant death. Um, now, there are things that we can teach the parents to do, right? There are things that we can teach the parents to do, like breastfeeding improves the risk of sudden unexpected infant death. So does pacifier use, which, you know, always ticks off our lactation consultants. Um, sleep positions, there are certain sleep positions that improve, you know, it's a protective factor. And then immunizations are another thing that can really help a lot. So I don't know. I mean, this is important information to know, um, like the things that would uh, be protective versus things that would, you know, increase the risk. And that's important for you when you have kids too. I mean, there's there's things that you can do to um, provide decrease that rate a lot. Um, okay, so in 2016, the American Academy of Pediatricians updated their um, safe sleep recommendations. And so just know what I really want you guys to know is that there are safe sleep recommendations. It is evidence-based and there are things that we can do that protect these little babies from when they go home, what their home environment needs to look like, right? Um, we don't want anyone smoking around baby. We don't, not even that, but we don't want the baby to then like be picked up by someone who smells really heavily of smoke and or who that's driving in a car. We don't want the baby driving in a car if it's, you know, a smoke-filled car or someone smokes in that car uh, routinely. So, um, okay, the uh, A-level recommendations that the American Academy of Pediatricians released in 2016, this hasn't been updated since 2016, but always, what's the position that we recommend? We re recommend back to sleep. And some of you guys are in the NICU right now and you're like, well, my baby's not positioned on their back, they're positioned side to side or they're positioned on their stomach even. You know, we're proning some patients right now because of COVID. Um, but the AAP recommendations, and these are at home recommendations, right? This isn't like if you have a critical care nurse supervising your baby uh, around the clock and they're like sitting right next to the baby all the time. So at home, anytime they go to sleep, we want them on their back. Um, always a firm sleeping surface. What does that mean, you guys? What's a firm sleeping surface? Like cement? What would you expect? Mattress, firm mattress. What did you say, CT? Firm mattress with no yeah, light, like a, heavy quilts or anything on it. Sure, a firm mattress. As opposed to, like, think about this, a water bed, right? You'll hear patients or uh, parents be like, yeah, they're sleeping on. They're like, where did you get a water bed from? You know, like, those were popular back in the 90s. Um, 
So breastfeeding, room sharing. Does anyone know how long you're supposed to room share? Like if you had a baby today, how long would that baby be sleeping in your room? The first three months. CT, what were you going to say? You don't know? Maybe like a month. I believe that the AAP recommends the first year. The first year. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's a lot. It's a long time. Um, we don't do that with Ruby, but, uh, yeah, that's, I think the official recommendation is that any soft objects and loose bedding is not supposed, they're not supposed to sleep with like any loose bedding. That means like blankets, um, lovey stuffed animals. You'll see cribs that are just like, there's a quilt in there. There's a comforter, there's pillows, um, there's stuffed animals, there's a lovey, there's crib bumpers, all of that stuff needs to be out of there. And um, always, you know, offer a pacifier, nap time, bedtime. And then obviously avoid illicit drug use during pregnancy. And whenever you bring that little baby home, that can help a lot, surprisingly enough. Um, this is what the sleep environment should look like. Now, what you should be thinking immediately is this does not look like the womb at all. There's nothing about this that is cozy and there's nothing about this that would like provide comfort to the baby, literally, except for the pacifier. And so uh, what happens uh, when you bring a baby home from the hospital is that they are trying to adapt to this new environment that they're in called the earth. And then you're, you know, the AAP recommendations are like, say, firm mattress, no, nothing in there that's cozy. Don't like sleep with them. Don't make them warm, like not too warm, not too cold. And um, so it can be a real challenge for babies to sleep. And then the parents get over, you know, they're just really exhausted and fatigued. And um, so that's why sleep environment becomes such a problem. I mean, almost ubiquitously for all parents um, because your baby's not sleeping. And I don't know the last time you checked in on bottom tier Maslow's, but sleep is like one of those things that is required for survival. And so um, it's a real challenge. You know, you get pretty high emotions in the newborn period, lots of, uh, lots of stuff happening there. So um, let's see what else. Oh, have you guys seen those uh, cardio uh, respiratory monitors? What is that talking about? Anyone into like baby gear? Well, those are those little owl, owlet socks. Uh-huh. What do those do, Caitlin? So they'll monitor, like, if your baby's respiratory rate drops or its heart rate drops, it'll, like, like send little sounds and it'll, like, alert the parents. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Caitlin? Are you pro those or anti those? You know, I don't know. If SIDS is going to happen, I feel like it's just going to happen. Like, I don't think there's really... But you can do like the preventative stuff, but if it's going to happen, there's nothing you can stop because you're not going to get the baby to the hospital enough time. Yeah. I, yeah. Any other opinions on that stuff? I don't care one way or the other what you guys, you know. What you're kind of, I kind of am a little bit pro because I feel like I'm going to be that mom who's like going in and putting my finger under its nose to make sure <laughs> the baby's breathing. Everybody like, does that with your first and then your second, you're like, I don't care. Just like, just assume <laughs> things are fine um yeah. yeah yes I did that with Everett all the time I kept waking him up and Mike was like get out of there what are you doing in there <laughs> yeah what else are you gonna say Pauline 
I was just going to say that if it like alerts me that my baby stopped breathing, there are things you can do. Like if you're, if you're there quickly, I don't know. I have never had a baby though. So I, I'm not sure. No, you'll be like every other first time parent, whenever you have a kid and you'll go completely nuts for them, you know, and you'll do all, whatever you, you'll strap them up to, you'll bring home like a pulse oximeter from the hospital and keep it on their finger and then outlet sock on their foot and heart rate monitor, <laughs> EKG device. Um, yeah. So here's the deal with this stuff is um, like Caitlin's right. It's not going to prevent SIDS. You know, they can, what it, the only thing that these things do is it provides comfort to the parents that like, well, if something happens, I'll at least know. And um, you know, that's true. That's true. If it helps you sleep, then buy it. I think anything is worth, you know, $250 one-time purchase. If it means that you get to sleep for a few hours, if you're sleep deprived. Um, so yes, there's all sorts of these monitors. Angel care is another one. That's where it's like a thing that the baby lays on. And if the baby stops breathing or moving for any reason, it like alarms. That's what we got with Everett and we use it with Ruby and man, that thing has not been turned on one single time with Ruby. I mean, we just, I'm like, she's fine. She's fine. She's real sturdy and competent. You know, she's a competent little baby. Okay. This um, infographic, man, it does a really good job of uh, showing you all of the things that you're supposed to have. You'll see all sorts of things out there. You know, there's all sorts of baby technology and things, and um, they make sleep sacks instead of blankets now. And those are helpful because it's not that loose blanket in their crib that can go over their face. It's like a little sack that kind of, there's no possibility that's going to go over their face. People are still using crib bumpers. That's like a big deal still for some people. Those need to get out of there. That's not a great thing. Although, um, you know, they do have a practical use and it's called keeping the pacifier in the crib so you aren't hunting around in the dark all night long for the pacifier while the baby's screaming um, its head off. So here's the- Sorry, I have a question. So when it says do not use the home cardio respirator, is that just because like to reduce the risk? Is that just because you don't want like the parents thinking, oh, if they have this on, yeah. they won't have SIDS? Right. So you, it's, it's that, you know, they put the outlet on their little foot or they put the angel care under their mattress and then they go, well, it's fine if they sleep with this quilt and it's fine if they use the bumpers and like all of these other things get thrown out the window. Um, and so, yes, that's exactly the situation. Um, the other, you just become too reliant on the technology and then you let some of your safeguards down, you know, and that makes sense. If you felt like, well, if they stop breathing, I'll 100% know. Well, those things can come off. The alarm can malfunction just like anything. Um, Pauline, they make mattresses now that babies can breathe through. Do you know, are they uh, like AAP compliant? I have no idea, actually. I, I forgot the name of them, but I just know that that's like a yeah. thing now. But It is. It's a thing. You know, um, the answer is no. Like, unless it's a firm mattress, in their own little crib, then it's not. But yeah, you'll see, like, I almost bought Ruby this little sleep hammock that was like basically mesh. And then I was reading about it. And you can find unfortunate circumstances in anything if you read enough Amazon reviews. Um, so know that that's true. 
uh, on a scale from like waterbed to cement, you know, it's probably in the middle. And then um, what else was I going to say? You know, in Sweden, I think it's like Sweden or Finland or Norway, one of those uh, cultures, countries, they send babies home. Every baby, do you know what they get? They, the country sponsors this program where they, the parents go home with this like box, a cardboard box full of goods for the baby, like diapers and wipes and, you know, and that cardboard box is also supposed to serve as the bed for like the first year of life. Yeah. It's like a car. It's just a cardboard box. Lowest SID rates in the world. Yeah. That one intervention. Crazy, right? Like who, why are we spending thousands of dollars? Why are we registering for all this stuff it's finland thanks emily so you're telling me that i can just go get a cardboard box instead of spending a lot of money on a crib yes and then post it to instagram and get <laughs> by all of the american you know this you also have better maternity leave too i know don't even get me started okay let's move i have on. another question about I, yeah i know someone who they're infant stopped breathing like twice mm -hmm. when she was really little and they caught it both times so wouldn't in that case if she had if they hadn't caught it she would probably have died yeah. and wouldn't that then I mean if they it might be sit considered SIDS yeah so if they had a a monitor when and I mean they caught it if they were sleeping and they had a monitor that was like hey your baby's not breathing uh-huh so I'm kind of confused writers saying don't do that. I know like don't rely on it compared to like, but it feels helpful. Yeah, I 100% agree. But those are the AAP recommendations. Like those are verbatim off of their uh, like updated report that they provided in 2016. I personally agree. Like it's not going to hurt unless you're just like, well, We'll start using a pillow and we'll start, you know, we'll throw in the bumper and all that stuff. Um, and then because, yeah, so I, I personally agree. Those things are probably helping more than they're hurting. It would be probably pretty difficult to get like an unbiased research study on that. But yeah, I haven't seen any evidence one way or the other. You just read a bunch of Amazon reviews, you know, um, when you're trying to figure that out. But yeah, I agree. I think that it can be helpful. I would use it just for the comfort. I know that a child yet, I don't have a child yet, but I always check to make sure my dog is still breathing when he sleeps. That's sweet. As soon as you have a child, Caitlin, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're going to have a child and you're not going to care if that dog is breathing or not. You're going to be like, I, if you bark one more time and wake this baby up, I will literally open the front door and let you out. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, Here's a summary. Have you guys ever heard of co-sleeping? Who's heard of co-sleeping? Um, yeah. Pauline, what were you, what are you going to say? I was going to say, I know people who do it for like years and I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? It is one of those things that you find yourself just doing and, uh, not you, I'm not saying that you're going to be this person. I, I taught this lecture a whole lot. And then, you know, I had Everett and I was like, oh my God, how did he get in my bed? And um, I would just fall asleep. You know, you're just so tired. Anyways, here's what I'm saying. Here's why this slide and the next few slides is in this presentation, because there is a 
high number of people in the general public who co-sleep. And if we come about co-sleeping in like a shaming way where we're like, well, don't co-sleep. Again, bottom tier Maslow's for survival, you have this like innate, not just desire to sleep, but need to sleep. And so um, you just get to the point where like you, you have to do it one way or the other. Well, here's the deal. This is what's so good about these recommendations is that this is the first time that the American Academy of uh, Pediatricians not only acknowledged that co-sleeping uh, exists in high proportions, but it also gave recommendations for people that do co-sleep and how to prevent and like minimize risk when you're co-sleeping. And that's really, really important. Obviously, it's still a recommendation. Don't share a bed with your baby. But obviously, a lot of people are doing that. And so what do we do when we find out, well, the pediatrician on almost every single uh, well child check is going to ask where baby's sleeping. And we really want to ask that information and get that information in a way that's non-judgmental because otherwise they're just going to be like, oh, in their crib. And then the baby's like, you know, God knows what. So, um, uh, yeah, parents are going to do what they need to do to sleep. So here, breastfeeding, routine immunizations, use a pacifier um, to reduce the risk of both SIDS and death during bed sharing. All right. You can read through the rest of this whenever you have time. I just want to say really quickly, I didn't mean to come off like I think co-sleeping is bad. I just know people oh. who like want to do co-sleeping and they'll do it for like three years because they think it's like better yeah. for the baby. No, I, yeah, no, I know people do it for a long time. And no, I didn't, I didn't read it that way at all. That, that that's what you were saying. Um, yeah, it just is something that happens. It's just like people who breastfeed, you know, until their baby's like five or six or seven or eight or nine or 12. There are people who do that, you guys. It's, we live in America. It's not normal, but in other cultures, it is. Um, so the good thing about this, all right, so here's what they want you to do. Because what people, what the new mom is typically saying, they're breastfeeding, they're doing their best. And so they want you to, they'll say that they're breastfeeding and then they fall asleep in their bed. Well, first things first, try not to breastfeed in your bed if that's the case. Like if that's, if you're always going to fall asleep in your bed when you're nursing, then uh, you need to get up out of bed as much as you can and then try and nurse in the chair or something where it's more difficult to fall asleep. The worst case scenario is you go out to the couch or that it's taken out to the couch. The couch is one of the highest areas where people, where babies will like die of sudden un unexpected infant death because they'll fall in between the person and the cushion. Um, and that's kind of the good thing about the bed is there's not that potential to get wedged in between like the cushion of the couch and the person. However, so if you're going to share a bed, there's recommendations, um, you know, nurse the baby. And then as soon as they're done nursing, put them right back into their crib or the whatever bassinet you're using right next to you. Um, always put them back on their back, um, firm mattress. If you are going, if they're going to sleep in the bed with you, sleep on a firm mattress, not a water bed, right? Um, don't like, uh, some beds like have a split in the middle. You want to get rid of that. No pillow, uh, no pillow top, sorry. Uh, no water beds, um, remove pillows, remove comforters, blankets, any loose sheets, anything. If that infant sleep area is the same as your sleep area, then you need to make your sleep area look like what the infants is supposed to be doing, right? So get the comforter out and wear pajamas, um, you know, stuff like that. Does that make sense, you guys? 
this is really good because this really um, provides a way for us to talk to families that are co-sleeping and provide recommendations in a way that can be realistic and help everybody. Okay, so after this happens, so let's kind of shift the conversation because this does happen. And if you ever work in an ER, you're going to eventually care for a family after like a SID has happened or suffocation or asphyxiation or something like that. And so the patient will be brought to the ER. Um, and the reason that they're being brought to the ER is to be pronounced dead. So this is a case where like mom and dad, mom or dad, someone walks in and they see, okay, the baby's blue that's not breathing. This is an emergency. They'll call 911 ambulance shows up and they take the baby to the ER and it's not for resuscitation. CPR is typically never started on these babies. Um, so, and that's because like, we don't know how long the baby has been in that state. We don't know. Um, I had a student once who was in the ER and they, she took care of a, a SIDS baby and the mom had, was sleeping on a waterbed, co-sleeping with the baby the baby was breastfeeding and the mom fell asleep because she'd taken some Benadryl before bed. She was sick. And um, the last time that she had seen the baby alive was at 10 p.m. And it was 6 a.m. when the baby was brought to the ER. And so in that situation, we're not going to do CPR. We're not going to intubate the baby and try and get, you know, get them on life support. It just doesn't, it's not something you're going to do. So what is really important to do is to start unpacking what's happened and try and collecting information about what's happened in a non-judgmental way, because um, you don't want to give any indication that the caregivers have done anything wrong. As nurses, that's just not really something that we can decide, discern, we can collect information. Okay, you took Benadryl, what time did you take it? When was the last time you saw your baby um, alive? And then, um, Provide comfort, you know, be compassionate, be as sensitive as possible. This is impossible to imagine everyone's uh, worst day of their entire life, right? So factual information is what we need. And that's true all the time. That's always true. Be objective. Don't be judgmental. Um, again, it's just not really our place to do that. So um, chaplain is super helpful. If, yeah, go ahead, Caitlin. Sorry. So what if like the baby, say I had a baby and they had their little owl thing on and then it says they stopped breathing. Like, I mean, me being a like soon to be nurse, could I start CPR oh on it? Oh my God, of course, yes. The definitely. ambulance could resume CPR and get it to the hospital? Yes, definitely. And you would want that to happen, right? But like yeah. that is where you rush in. So Everett had an angel care monitor and there was a time where he like stopped breathing it went off and we like rushed in there and in that situation you're not going to be like well unfortunately like he stopped it could just be like a period of apnea which is very very common in that neonatal period like the first three to four weeks especially and especially if they're low birth weight they're going to have pre apnea prematurity uh, uh you see that all the time in the NICU so anyways, yes, if you're like catching it and you are, you know, that's just card, that could be cardiac pulmonary arrest. And so you would just, that CPR training and ACLS training would just kick into hyper gear. Um, just like if you saw a kid drowning in the swimming pool, you know, 
But if it's like, if it's a true SIDS, that means that the patient is, has passed and they're blue and they're not breathing. And we don't know when the last time they were breathing. And a lot of times this is like the patient or the parent or caregiver comes in and discovers that they have passed away. And in that situation, what I'm saying is that the ambulance isn't going to start CPR typically. And okay. it, CPR is not going to be started in the ER. There's not going to be life-saving measures because the patient's already passed away. Okay. Help. Thank you. No problem. And stop apologizing when you have a question. I don't care. I don't care if you interrupt me. I want you to. Okay. So um, a lot of times you have to realize that these patients, the parents, I'm sorry, the parents, um, this time with their baby in the ER, it is a real like chaotic scene leading up to the ER. And when they get to the ER, that's going to be their first time that the kid is pronounced dead. And then at that point, everything shifts to what do we need to do to ensure that there's closure, right? So as soon as you call, you would call like um, the medical examiner, and then you would start postmortem care. And this is going to be easy postmortem care because the patient's not going to have IVs. Typically, they're not going to be intubated. There's not going to be like much stuff to do. And but realize that um, once they pronounce dead, you're really kind of waiting to take them down to the morgue. And once they've been taken down to the morgue, typically the parents will not have another opportunity to hold that baby again. And so just realize like sometimes they're sitting in there for a long time. And you guys may have experienced this in like labor and delivery. Like that's not always a happy place. Sometimes the infant does not survive. The baby doesn't survive birth. And um, you'll have parents who days later, they're going home and they're like, I just want to hold the baby one more time. And they'll go get that baby from the morgue and bring it up and let the mom or dad hold it. Um, or, I mean, you know, we don't have to get into that. Um, if the mom has been nursing that baby, then they need practical information that so that they prevent mastitis, right? And so, like, you want to help them figure out like cessation of lactation. What are what are you learning in family focus about cessation of lactation? I want to be consistent. Cabbage, cabbage leaves, right? Okay, I'm glad that's still the the only thing that we do. I guess cold cabbage leaves. That's what's on the NCLEX. My friend was telling me about some kind of cabbage oil that she'd bought on Amazon to help her. I was like, okay, that, that sounds good too. Whatever. Don't put that on your NCLEX question though. Okay. And then this is really hard for the care team as well. You know, anytime an infant passes away, ideally evidence would say to debrief your care team and kind of unpack everything that happened because this can be really traumatic for care providers as well. Okay. Questions about that sudden unexpected infant death. Okay, so let's hit asthma. Have you guys talked about asthma before? How many times? Once, twice, seven? Asthma like is one of those things that just gets hit over and over in the curriculum. So you may know about the pathophysiology, but in case you don't, um, asthma is a type of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. We learned about COPD earlier in this semester already. Asthma is one of those things. It's a chronic inflammatory disorder of the airways. You get a bronchospasm. And so in that situation, you have your uh, open bronchial. And because of like, you know, uh, this inflammatory process that's occurring, 
during a bronchospasm, it constricts. And then because of the inflammation that's occurring constantly inside of their asthmatic airways, you'll also get obstruction with like mucus and just the inflamed di inner diameter of that airway will also cause quite a lot of obstruction, okay? So you get bronchospasms that occur, and that's especially true during like acute asthma exacerbations. But then you'll also have like the edema on the inside of that bronchial that's physically obstructing the airway and narrowing the airway. And then on top of that, I don't know, even know what I'm doing at this point, but on top of that, you have mucus um, being produced by the inflamed, uh, you know, endothelium of the airways. Okay. So that's the pathophysiology. There are different levels of asthma. There's different like categories. And so Hopefully people with asthma are having intermittent asthma. And that's where you're just like, you're care you have asthma, you have this like chronic inflammation of your bronchi and bronchioles. And by the way, just so we're like clear, we're not talking about the trachea up here. We're not talking about the alveoli. So this is typically not a gas exchange issue as much as it is like you have an airway restrictive disease that's causing obstruction, right? Um, okay, so intermittent asthma is where you have asthma, but it's very mild. You're having very few symptoms. Maybe you're just carrying around a rescue inhaler and using it sometimes, all right? Um, there's mild persistent asthma, and that's where you have symptoms two or more days a week, which is, you know, starting to become more invasive. If like at two days out of every seven, you're having to use rescue inhaler, um, and you're having issues like with dyspnea several times a week, then that would be considered mild persistent. Moderate persistent is where you have symptoms at least every day. That means at some point during every single day, you're having issues with dyspnea or you're having to use your, air, your rescue inhaler or something within that. That is not really control of your symptoms at that point, right? We have like poor control if you're having that many symptoms where it's every single day. And then severe persistent asthma, again, symptoms during the day and you're waking up also every night because of asthma and to get in, on top of your breathing and gas exchange, then that is really um, uh, invasive. So that would be persistent, uh, severe persistent asthma at that point. So during an acute asthma episode, um, they, people, does anyone have asthma? Here that they would like to share. If not, no big deal. I had it as a kid. Do you remember what your, did you ever have asthma attacks? Yeah. What all were the time? I mean, you just all of a sudden you feel like you can't breathe and you have no idea what's going on. I had it like when I was five. By the time I was seven, I grew out of it. But I had it. They said I, I, I had it because I had croup. I had the epiglottis version of croup. Wow! Wow! Yeah. Wow! 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 Well, cellulitis so. is one of the one of the main causes of asthma too. I mean, that can really turn into a uh, hyperactive airway disease, which can then turn into asthma. So you have this like hypersensitivity sensitivity happening in your airways, and that can typically be triggered by like a viral or bacterial issue early, early in childhood. So yeah, the way that um, anyone else ever had an asthma attack that they can remember? Anybody? That's fine. That's good. Such a healthy group of people. So um, I've never had one. That's why I'm trying to reach out for someone else in case they know. 
Um, so chest tightness, anxiety, dyspnea, of course, just like Angelica said, all of a sudden you can't breathe and you don't really know why or what's going on. This is happening to little kids who don't necessarily have the like ability to recognize what's happening. Um, if you put your uh, uh, stethoscope to them, you would hear that wheezing. You would see them using their accessory muscles. And we said, what does that look like exactly? What are the accessory muscles that these kids would be using? They're like retracting. So they're using their like abdominal muscles, all of like, you, like their chest is moving so quickly because, and their abdomen is moving with it. And you're like, mm -hmm. well, that's normal. Yeah, definitely. They're having a lot more like um, conscious diaphragmatic breathing as well. CT, were you going to say anything? Just say that like the intercostal muscles are always involved a lot of times too, because uh, they have to use all, you know, just move the rib cage up and down. Yeah, definitely. And anytime you see uh, like retractions, intercostal retractions, especially in kids, that always indicates respiratory distress, you guys. That's, that is a sign and symptom of respiratory distress. Um, and then tachycardia, they can have tachycardia and PVCs. That's from the hypoxia that they're experiencing. And sometimes when they're having an, an asthma attack, they'll get prodromal itching. And that's because ultimately this is an inflammatory response that's being triggered by like exposure to um, like an antigenic substance, right? And that can cause that prodromal itching of the neck or back, irritability, restlessness. What does that sound like? Irritability and restlessness. Um, hypoxia. That's early symptoms of hypoxia. What's a late sign and symptom of hypoxia? That's like irritability and restlessness. Cyanosis, uh, le lethargy. Cyanosis, lethargy, loss of consciousness. We definitely want to intervene before in those early symptoms before it progresses into those late symptoms. Okay, you ready for me? Okay, great. Thanks. Um, okay, so give me one second, you guys. Okay, so... Um, let me think what else I was going to say. So chronic manifestations here are airway remodeling. And that's because they're getting that um, like revascularization and the mucosal thickening. So they'll develop that same barrel chest that you'll see just like in COPD, depressed diaphragm. Um, so again, this is very much like what we talked about in the past with COPD. Um, okay. And all of that, is, what's barrel chest? Who can, who can remember what is barrel chest? where their chest is like it sticks out wider and like yeah. their diaphragm is like sunken in. Yes, that's right. We talked about probably at some point the AP to transverse ratio and instead of a two to one ratio, you get a one to one ratio. So um, to diagnose asthma, here's the deal. You cannot get an asthma diagnosis until the kid is old enough to compliantly and like a uh, reasonably do these pulmonary function tests. And so um, the one that we're really, really interested in is the peak flow rate, peak expiratory flow rate. And um, they'll actually be given a peak flow meter after we do like the initial diagnosis of asthma. So that's why like, you're not gonna see a two-year-old walking around with a diagnosis of asthma. Although you may see a two-year-old with an albuterol inhaler who has hyperactive airway disease. And um, so 
why, why can't we give them a diagnosis of asthma? Because they cannot do these, uh, you know, with any kind of accuracy. They just can't follow directions well enough yet. So we'll have to wait, usually until they're like around five before we can really um, do this with any kind of accuracy. So um, what we're looking for is the amount of air in liters that is forcibly exhaled in one second. Angelica, do you remember doing peat flow meter? How do you do it? Actually, I still have one. You do? Yeah. Well, so do my husband is an asthmatic as well, but he has exercise-induced asthma more so now. Yeah. Um, and his mom is asthmatic and his sister is asthmatic. So Okay. So does he use his peat flow meter ever? Yeah, occasionally we have to use it just to like see how bad it is, really. Okay, and what we're looking for, you guys, is we're looking for how well, and so her husband has exercise-induced asthma. Um, think about like your little five-year-old kid who's having a lot of issues breathing and they're running around on recess and they're becoming dyspneic and, you know, if there's Right now it's springtime, there's a ton of allergens in the air, dad's mowing grass outside, something's happening, and all of a sudden they have dyspnea because of an asthma attack. And so what we're going to have them do, we're going to send them home with the peak flow meter, and the way that it works is it is like a little um, tube, and I put a video on the next slide, but it's a little tube with um, the numbers, like a little uh, meter on the side, right? And they set the meter down to zero and then they put it to their lips. They take, they empty their lungs fully and then they take as deep of a breath as they possibly can, put the thing to their lips and then they force as, they exhale as forcefully as possible. I like to think of it a lot like you're spitting a spitball. You remember spitball CT? You remember all the things. CT, unmute yourself. What is a spitball for people, anyone who doesn't know? Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, and who is in an 80s baby or a 70s baby, um, you take a wad of paper and you chew it up and you put it in a straw and you blow it to someone like a blowgun. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you're sitting in class in like, you know, sixth grade or whatever. Some unassuming adult gives you a, a disposable straw with the plastic, the wrapper, the paper wrapper on the outside. That's like the perfect you know, device. Anyways, you put it in your mouth, you get it nasty. And then you like blow as hard as you can. So it'll stick to the ceiling or stick to the back wall or whatever it was. I wasn't like that. You can tell I was like a good kid. Um, so I just know from like, you know, seeing other people do it, but that's exactly what you do with peak flow meter. You're just inhaling, blowing as hard as you can, as forcefully as you can, as quickly as you can. The peak is really hard when you're having actually an asthma attack. That's exactly right. And that's why this is actually done every single day. And what it helps us do as providers is it helps us see how the patient is doing overall. So we can see, are they in intermittent asthma? Are they in mild persistent, moderate persistent, or severe persistent? The way that we really tell is by their peak flow readings, all right? Because they're going to do this every day, usually when they wake up. And um, when they're, you know, presumably have not been exposed to an allergen at night or whatever, but um, that if from one day to the next, their peak flow is gradually declining and they're also starting to experience more symptoms, 
then that tells us that we need to start medical intervention, okay? So just to summarize, let's see here. Who is someone, Reka, you're here. You're in my clinical group. Um, tell us how you would teach someone to do a peak flow meter. How would they use it? Rika, Elliot, you're the next person on the list. Your friend did not comment. That's okay. I'm ready. Okay, great. Tell us. So I would tell them we're probably going to want to do this in the morning. So we're, we haven't done any exercise or been exposed to anything outside and we'll just take a deep breath in and then we'll blow out as hard as we can. Yes. Now here's the deal. They have this little worksheet and we actually do not want them doing it just one time. We want them to do it three times at the same time. So they wake up, they do it every morning, just like when you're weighing yourself in the morning, right? You're doing that before you've had anything to eat or drink. You do it as naked as you can get because you don't want any extra weight on that number, right? So it's the same thing. Now here, you're doing this three times in a row and you're recording the first number and then you do it again and you record the second number and then you do it again and then you record the third number. And what you're actually going to use for the day for your peak flow meter reading is that the highest number, okay? You're not taking an average of the three. Sorry, you guys. Ruby concurs. Okay, so um, you're not taking an average of those three numbers. You're looking at, okay, one was, you know, 400, one was 410, one was 415. Which one are you going to use? I'm, I'm actually asking you. The last one? The highest one, which was the last one in my example. Yeah, so 415. All right, I'm going to give you another example. You have... Um, like 250, 265, and 255. Which one are you going to use? 265. Right. So the highest of the three. All right. That makes sense. Watch this video. It's very good. It's very clear on all the things. So here's the deal. Diagnostically, when the first person is first diagnosed with asthma, we have their peak flow readings. We've been doing it for a while and we know what their personal best is because we're, we can see for like a two-week period, you're consistently blowing at 400 milliliters and it, that's your peak flow. It's peak expiratory flow. And so we can see like 400 milliliters, that's your personal best. Okay. That's going to be different from Caitlin's personal best, which is going to be different from Angelica's personal best, which is going to be different from Everett's. So the number doesn't matter. It's identifying what that person's personal best is. And then from here, we do an asthma action plan, okay? So green zone is anything between 80 to 100% of your personal best. And let's see, what would 80% of 400 milliliters be? Who can help me with that real quick? 80%, that's like 320? Does that sound right? 320? 320, is that 80% of 400? Yes. Okay. Dang, I'm good at math. So that means that like you wake up one day and it, you're blowing 380. And then the next, next day you're blowing 385. And then the next day you're 365, right? So you have some variability in there, but generally speaking, you're blowing in the green. And then, you know, allergy season hits, spring hits, maybe you're around some, you're on vacation, someone's smoking around you and it triggers an asthma exacerbation. And so then you start getting, you know, 
300, 290, 295. Well, now you're in yellow, right? Because that's going to be 60 to 80% of your personal best. And you're also having a stuffy nose and you're coughing. All right. And that just kind of sounds like a head cold, except that we also know that you have asthma. Um, so any of these symptoms in the yellow zone, you're going to be kind of on alert for because it means that the patient's asthma symptoms are worsening. Okay. They're not necessarily breathing well. We're losing control of their asthma symptoms. Does that make sense? And we want to regain control. Sorry. I know she's like, she's so loud. I'm really sorry, you guys. Anyways. All right. Now, anytime they wake up in the morning and they are getting below 60% of their personal best, they need to call their doctor. They need to take their inhaler and I'll be right back. I'm going to just get her set up. This is the best part of lecture, just saying. I know. Right. <laughs> so sweet. I'm like literally throwing toys down at her. <laughs> so um, below 60% of their personal best, they're going to have these symptoms as well. Anytime that they are having issues getting, um, you know, they do it three times and they're having that, then uh, they need to take that uh, fast acting inhaler and call their physician. And the reason is because we are going to need to do interventions to get control of those symptoms again. All right. So think about like loss of control of these symptoms and then regaining control because that's really going to help you with this asthma action plan. So, so just for clarification, yes. so you use this green, yellow, and red. So mm -hmm. they'll be blowing in the thing every day. But if there's drops to red um, yes. on one day, then you should call your doctor. Right, because this is kind of a slower, they may have like an asthma attack and not necessarily need, you know, like a full-blown oral corticosteroid pack or something like that. But um, if they're like slowly worsening and, you know, maybe there's mold growing in their house, maybe there's some kind of introduction of an allergen. And so this is a more uh, prolonged way to identify that we're losing control of those symptoms outside of like an acute asthma attack. Does that make sense? Okay. Now there's yes. times on this asthma action plan where we have to regain control of their symptoms. And um, you guys know what quick, quick relief inhalers are, right? The short acting beta agonists or SABAs, that's your asthma inhalers. And who knows what, this is the inhaler. And so this is like different than nebulizer. A nebulizer is where you have that mask over and it's like nebulized inhalants that you're just like breathing in and out normally. An inhaler is used how? Does anyone have the pleasure of using one, Angelica? How do we um, use an inhaler? So you actually have one sitting over here. I'm not going to use it because I don't need it right now. But um, you shake it up. Make sure you shake it up vigorously because it's useless if you don't. Um, and then you're going to uh, hold it to your lips. And then when you hit the puff, make sure you take a deep breath in or you're just going to hit it to the back of your throat. No, it's useless. Yeah. And it's hold it. coordinated thing. And it kind of takes some like, you know, help practicing. And that's why for little kids, because it is harder for them to coordinate, like if I made Everett try an inhaler without a spacer, it would go awful, right? But like with a spacer, it holds that medication in the space so that they can like take an inhalation in. 
And then, you know, your preteens and your like even school age kids are going to be able to coordinate that a little bit better, but it is shake it up. You have to shake it up, like she said. Um, and then as you are, you know, about to give yourself a puff, you're coordinating it with an inhalation to get that medication, not in your mouth, but into your lungs. That's the goal, right? And then you hold it in for a second and then you exhale. And then what normally one of those puffs is not enough. Normally the prescription is two puffs. How far apart, Angelica? I want to say it's like 90 seconds, but now yeah. I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say like about two minutes apart because you want that first one to kind of start bronchodilation. So that second one does an even better, uh, has an even better impact. Um, Everett had, you know, bronchiolitis. Like I took him, I started taking him to daycare within, I believe, 48 hours, he came down with RSV, which is fine. And then he got bronchiolitis, which is fine. And then he was diagnosed with hyperactive airway disease, which is fine. So they sent us home with an albuterol inhaler and he would have so much trouble breathing. So I would like hold this spacer to his face and he would immediately start screaming his head off. And I was like, great, he's getting great breaths, you know? So I put it on there and just hold it to his little face. And then it worked. We would always work great. He would improve his symptoms. So that's your quick relief. You can also do your anticholinergics, of course. Um, but uh, we just spent a lot of time talking about how to use an inhaler and albuterol and spacer. So definitely know that for the test. Okay, then you have your control of symptoms, right? So when we need to get in control of our symptoms, that's when you're going to start seeing us using long-acting beta adrenergics, right? And so that's going to be different than your rescue inhaler. A long-acting beta adrenergic is not going to be super helpful during an acute asthma attack. Um, so they, they may have multiple inhalers, and unfortunately, it's just going to take a ton of education to help them understand. This is your rescue inhaler. This is the one that we want you to take every morning and every evening, okay? A lot of times your uh, long-acting inhalers, your, lo uh, your LABA is going to be used with an inhaled corticosteroid. Does anyone know what medication you see all over the... the Advair. Advair. Advair is a LABA with an inhaled corticosteroid. And usually when that's prescribed, it's prescribed two puffs in the morning and two puffs in the evening or at nighttime, bedtime, Right. That's really going to help improve and get in control of those symptoms. And the reason is because you're not having a short acting uh, bronchodilation. You're having long acting bronchodilation on top of and in conjunction with an inhaled corticosteroid, which is actually promoting that uh, reduction of inflammation inside of the airways. Okay. That inhaled corticosteroid is so much better then at oral corticosteroids, whenever we can use it, um, although there are times that we have to use oral corticosteroids here, um, if they're having like a really severe acute um, exacerbation. What is adverse generic name? Why would you ask me something like that? I don't know, let me look. Adverse. Like for Motorola and something else. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, oh. it's like the same thing as Flonase, but it's the uh, oral version of it. It's fluticasone propanonate or something. 
Hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> All right, perfect. Perfect. So it's just a combination. All right, Zane Advair. You can always know when I don't know how to pronounce the uh, uh, generic name whenever I just use a trade name. Uh, okay. So that's how you get in control of the symptoms, right? In uh, inhaled corticosteroid or a LABA or the combination of the two. All right, let's move on to prevention. So prevention is your leukotrin modifying agents, all right? Your leukotrin modifying agents um, and your corticosteroids. And this is where you're gonna see your oral corticosteroids more than your, no, I'm sorry. What am I talking about now? What am I talking about now? Uh, leukotrin modif. There's a leukotrin inhaler, I believe. Um, no, leukotrin is just like your. Hold on a second, you guys. What am I thinking of? I have to get clarification before I tell you the wrong thing. I'm gonna have to like. Just listen to Ruby Kuhn. I'm sorry. Put it in my course evals. So your leukotrin agonist, oh, that's the montelukast, right? Um, your singular tablets that people take that have aller seasonal allergies and they're taking like singular. Um, that is usually an oral tablet that again, you take typically in the morning, in the, in the evening. And then corticosteroids, again, that can really help control symptoms or prevent symptoms from ever occurring because you are preventing that asthma. Uh, sorry, the inflammation in the airways. All right, your five-year-old son is attending daycare since he's been four months. He had a respiratory infection that progress progresses to bronchiolitis approximately four to five times a year for the first three years of his life. His pediatrician discusses that he likely has hyperactive airway disease. Hold on a second. I knew you were going to ask, Julie. I was like... Oh man, he was gonna ask. Hold on. Not a bad thing. I think it's agonist. What did I say? It's a leukotrin modifier at antagonist. Leukotrin antagonist. Okay, so now that your son is old enough to do a PEFR test accurately, the doctor has confirmed a diagnosis of asthma. All right. And so I included this asthma action plan in the module. And um, what I want, I'll post the answers to that. But basically, when the patient is in, let me pull it up, you guys. I suddenly feel so unprepared, even though I am. I should have had this pulled up, though. I should have known I was going to need this. For hyperactive airway disease, do they always use the um, nebulizers as well, or is that just sometimes? Usually for hyperactive airway disease, they'll, they'll use a rescue inhaler, and that's typically it, um, although the patient may, may need uh, oral corticosteroids, would just be like a, uh, you know, emulsification instead of like oral tablets, depending on their age. Geez, you guys, it's taking me forever to find. I'm so sorry. What doesn't work for you anymore? Leukotrin 
antagonist, Haley? Yeah, the Montelukast, whatever that word is, that one does not work anymore. Montelukast. Okay, yeah. asthma worksheet. It is in the module. And I'm going to share this with you really quickly because it gives a really good um, kind of understanding of what these asthma uh, action plans would be. So here's your relievers, right? You have your asthma inhalers, and that's one that I really want you to know. Um, you also have your anticholinergic uh, inhalers, and that would be like your, um, oh, Atrovent, like I said. Okay, controllers. Those are your long-acting beta agonists. And then you have your combinations, which we talked about Advair being one of those combinations. And you have your preventers. Okay, so this is kind of the drug classes to know for the test and only know the ones that I've talked about. Here's your leukotriene receptor antagonist. Now here's an example of an asthma action plan. And so what I would want you to know is like, you have your personal best and you're just going to have to pretend like it's 400 or 500 or whatever is easiest for you to remember. And then you will fill this out for yourself. All right. Now, when you're in green, you're typically just going to go, okay, I'm in green. I'm going to do my preventer. And that means I'm going to take my um, monoluclast, my, uh, what is it? Singular tablets in the morning and in the evening. And Besides that, I have my um, rescue inhaler before exercise, right? Is that what your husband does, Angelica? Does he take anything else for his asthma? Uh, we just use that. He has a singular and then he takes his asthma inhaler or right before um, his exercise. And then like I know him. Before he cuts the grass, he does too, because that usually will throw him off. Yeah, so anything that causes like an exacerbation, like if you it's going to cause you to have dyspnea, you want to go ahead and take that inhaler before asthma, sorry, exercise, PE for your kids, they're not going to register exercise as anything. So you're going to have to tell them take it before PE and recess, right? Um, and then if they get into the yellow zone, that's where we're starting again to lose control of those symptoms, right? And so that's where we're going to introduce Advair at night. And in the, or sorry, in the morning and in the evening. And so that's going to be your long acting beta agonist and your inhaled corticosteroid usually, right? You're still taking that monoclass, monoluclass. I'm sorry. And then you're still using your rescue inhaler. Here, your ranges are from what, 60 to 80%. All right. So you'll figure out if I have a peak flow in this range. I'm not just going to take my singular and I'm not just going to use my rescue inhaler. I'm also taking my Advair in the morning and the evening. Usually it's two puffs of both. Okay. Um, two puffs twice a day. Now, anytime it gets below that 60%, then that's when we know we look at these medicine is not helping. If your albuterol inhaler is not helping, call 911. Don't go to your doctor's office. You know, they're not going to want you there. They don't want you there. Um, if you're breathing so hard and fast that you're literally becoming hypoxic, we want to address that before you lose consciousness, right? Your ribs are showing, your no you have nasal flaring, all of that is respiratory distress. We do not want that person hanging out overnight. That's where asthma symptoms get worse is at nighttime. So, um, you know, take your rescue inhaler and then get to the ER if it's really acute or if it can wait and it's just like, they're having issues, but you know, it's not like they're acutely hypoxic. 
then maybe they can wait and get worked in same day for their doctor's office. And we don't want these person at urgent care. Urgent care is not going to know what to do. They're not going to have their asthma action plan. They really need to see the person that is uh, coordinating their care. Okay, so that makes sense. Any questions? I have a quick question. Yes, um, does the how does this chart relate to the type of asthma? Like, is it correlated with mild, moderate, intermittent, severe, all that? Yeah. So typically, when people are in their like mild, persistent asthma, if they're just having like you know intermittent asthma, they may not necessarily have an action plan. But once they have mild persistent asthma, then they may need an asthma action plan. If they have severe persistent asthma, then we're going to identify their personal best and then try and get in control of those symptoms. And then we'll constantly be reevaluating them until we've optimized their breathing and really mm -hmm. gain control of their symptoms. Does that make sense? Yeah. So people will often um, move back and forth throughout this yellow, green, red. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So what would get someone um, who's green into yellow, you guys? Does, can anyone think of something? Seasonal allergies. Seasonal allergies. That's like your classic. It just, your symptoms start getting worse. You start having a runny nose. That's when you need that inhaled corticosteroid a little bit more and your long acting beta agonist, right? What would, what would be something that would cause an acute issue where someone's all of a sudden experiencing like really severe respiratory distress that was previously just having some seasonal allergies and it was well controlled? An infection? An infection, right? COVID, RSV, flu. That's when they're going to get into these uh, red zones for sure. And that's called an acute asthma exacerbation, all right? So let me share this. Pneumonia is another wonderful example. Definitely. I have another question. Sure. My husband had uh, childhood asthma. He also had like crazy allergies, had to get like allergy shots all the time. Yeah. And now he's completely fine. How do people just like grow out of that? Um, they develop a more competent immune system and they're Bronchi bronchi and bronchioles physically become larger than uh you know I mean like think about you know a kid's a little baby's bronchioles like a three-month-old four-month-old baby their bronchioles are so small compared to like an adult even a seven-year-old and so that's how they grow out of it and that's typically why you know, the rate of hyperactive airway disease and the rate of asthma is dramatically different for that reason alone. All right, any other questions? Okay, so nursing care. You have a patient, right? They're having an asthma attack. What do you do? You assess airway, respiratory rate, their respiratory effort. Is it labored? Is it unlabored? Are they using those accessory muscle, muscles? Is there signs and symptoms of respiratory distress? If so, we need to intervene immediately, right? Like you cannot leave that room if that patient's experiencing acute cyanosis. If they were not previously experiencing cyanosis, if they were having degrading level of consciousness, you need to intervene. High Fowler's position, they're gonna want to be sitting up. You Anytime you've had like, dyspnea or trouble breathing, the last thing you want to do is lay down, right? Um, so a supplemental oxygen and how much oxygen do we know? How much oxygen is too much? Like what, how do we dictate oxygen therapy? 
based on Lowest those. Out of the lowest. Yeah, lowest concentration to achieve an SpO2, usually 93, 95 or higher, right? Um, manage acute anxiety because that only kind of increases their oxygen demand. And then, you know, they're becoming increasingly hypoxic, which makes them increasingly anxious. So how do we manage acute anxiety? This is like your five-year-old, six-year-old kid. So get your family-centered nursing care ideas out. Well, definitely have their parents in there with them. Yeah, definitely. There's nothing you can do. You're a stranger, right? They don't want you in there. They don't want you in there taking a blood pressure cuff. They don't want you in there being scary or coming at them with an IV needle unless you absolutely have to, right? The little nebulizer, like, they look so charming and just adorable. And that's because we're trying to prevent anxiety. We're like, look, it looks like Mickey Mouse. We're going to put Mickey on your face and he's going to help you breathe. That's so much like, you know, more comforting than my name is Caitlin and I'm going to put an IV. I'm going to stick your arm and then we're going to take you to a CAT scan. Um, always vaccinate your patients. Lord, Lord, you guys know that by now, right? Get your vaccines and these patients, especially. Why is it important, especially important for these people to get vaccinated? Their risk of infection will put them in an asthma attack every time. Yeah, and even worse than one asthma attack is like that red zone where we lose control of their of you know their symptoms. They're having really big issues, profound issues with dyspnea. I'm I have nowhere else to put her. I'm really sorry. Um, and then again, we already went over the action asthma action plans. So let me know if you have any questions about that. I want you to know how to teach someone to use an inhaler. I want you to know how to teach someone to use that peak flow meter, okay? Sorry. Um, I just thought this is interesting. If you ever watched Call the Midwife, there's a book, um, and it's about like nursing practice back in the 50s and 60s, specifically with midwifery, but she gets into like all sorts of different avenues of medicine. This is so distracting, I'm so sorry. Anyway. It really doesn't bother us. We're going to be honest. It bothers me. I can barely think. Um, okay. Anyways, it's really interesting that this quote is from her memoir and no one dies from asthma is like kind of mind blowing because it's something that you see all the time now because this phenomenon is getting worse. And now we have something called status asthmaticus, which I mean, maybe it happened then, maybe it didn't, maybe it just wasn't well documented, but I thought that was a really interesting um, quote from her memoir. And I would really highly recommend, um, you know, reading books eventually again at some point in your life, whenever you have more time, but also that specific memoir and um, TV show series is really good. Anyways, you know me and my medical history dramas. So um, status asthmaticus is an asthma attack that is unresponsive to your traditional asthma medications. So your, your albuterol nebulizer is not helping. That inhaler is not helping. You have to do more aggressive therapy at this point. And so in this situation, you may have to intubate the patient. Um, you may, they may be getting like continuous nebulizers. Okay, is Krisha on here? Krisha? Is not. She had a patient last week that was getting continuous albuterol. 
that is very, very rare. And that really speaks to a level of airway obstruction. And they were getting it from because of bronchospasms. Um, but that really speaks to like a level of respiratory distress that is not typical. Um, but that might be something that you see in status asthmaticus. This is where you have to have an IV access. We are going to be monitoring ABGs. This person's going to be in full-on critical care. Um, and we're going to try everything we can with every medication out there to get on top of those asthma symptoms. So um, this is where you may see oral or even IV administration of corticosteroids. This is where inhaled corticosteroids are not going to be doing enough because we're having a systemic inflammatory response that's really causing severe amounts of inflammation. So oral, IV, IM corticosteroids would be, be the more expected treatment here, not your inhaled, okay? And then um, magnesium sulfate can help kind of, uh, sorry, relieve the bronchospasms that's being experienced in this case, although that's not something that you would expect with like your normal asthma attack. Ketamine and then um, inhaled helium uh, can help that. That's heliox is inhaled uh, helium. So let's talk about cystic fibrosis before. So we... what would ketamine do? I know they use that to like kind of sedate people, but uh -huh. would it cause respiratory depression? Um, you know, I don't think it causes respiratory depression. It's a like sedative. And I believe, well, the reason they would be getting it is because their anxiety, it's really going to improve like their oxygen demand. And um help everything else like work more efficiently, you know? So, okay. so it's mainly they're, they're going to need sedation for that reason. What'd you say? So it's mainly used for anxiety rather than like. Yeah, anxiety. Um, and then they're intubated. So they need sedation for that as well. But then also uh, for a person who's like terribly dyspneic, this can improve like the oxygen demand happening systemically. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Okay, so cystic fibrosis is a genetic disorder that's caused by an autosomal recessive gene. And what that means, you guys, is that you can have two parents who are carriers who have no idea that they are carrying the gene and they can have a baby with cystic fibrosis. Um, and that happens all the time. So once you have a baby who has cystic fibrosis or you've identified a parent that's a carrier, the other parent really needs to get tested to make sure that they're not also carrying the gene or if they are carrying the gene that they are appropriately counseled on the risk for um, like for one of their kids being and having this expression. Okay, the genetic expression since it's a recessive trait. Um, look at this. This is in the 1500s. This was a uh, European folklore. Woe to the child, which when kissed on the forehead tastes salty. He is bewitched and soon must die. This is actually talking about cystic fibrosis. And so why, why if their forehead tastes salty, would that indicate cystic fibrosis? It is because in cystic fibrosis, you have alteration of the sodium chloride channels. Um, and so Patients with cystic fibrosis do taste a lot saltier. Their sweat actually has a much higher concentration of salt in it than you or I would. And so um, I believe it's like over 40 milliequivalents. Um, hold on one second. 
Okay, so um, this is where, again, they have like this alteration that causes um, sodium and chloride to be transmitted across like the channels easier. Uh, sorry, like your sweat's going to be saltier. And what that means is like the secretions inside of your body get a lot thicker. So like your respiratory secretions, you're losing sodium and chloride. And so it, that's typically responsible in you and I and thinning out our respiratory secretions and keeping them thin enough for us to like expectorate them. And then, and like our, you know, your guts are always secreting mucus as well, like the inside of your intestines are. And so here, because of this alteration in the sodium chloride channels, the mucus that their gut secretes and even their pancreatic and biliary ducts secretes is a lot thicker. And so they're more likely to um, get something called meconium ileus in infancy. And that's where like their meconium is so thick. And who's changed like a meconium diaper at this point? What is it like, Caitlin? It's really nasty. <laughs> it's Tell like how? nasty in what way? Like sometimes it's green and slimy and like it's really slimy. It's like tar. Yeah. Like normal meconium is like tar and you're just wiping it and it's like it's just getting more and more stuck. Well, it's the like, you know, uh, fluid inside of the uterine, like the, what is that stuff called? Um, um, amniotic fluid. And they're just like digesting that fluid with all of their skin cells and hair and that's meconium, all right? If they have cystic fibrosis, what can happen to that is it gets even thicker and um, like uh, all of the fluid in that is not available. And it's like thick to begin with and like tar-like to begin with. So in utero, they'll, they could develop something called meconium ileus, which is a complete intestinal obstruction in either in, in utero or in early infancy where they don't ever pass meconium, that could actually indicate meconium ileus. Eventually, these uh, patients with cystic fibrosis will also have so many issues with mucus and secretions from the pancreatic and gallbladder, pancreas and gallbladder, that they will develop uh, malabsorption. Their pancreatic enzymes can't be released into their small intestines. And remember, we talked about pancreatic enzymes earlier this semester and how critical they are for digestion and like that is what causes the emulsification of your food and turns your sandwich into like liquid stool. And so if those can't get secreted from the paint, from the common bile duct and like the pancreatic duct and all that stuff, then um, you're not going to be able to absorb any of the nutrients from your food because none of that stuff is coming out and that's critical for absorption, right? Same thing with um, bile, like bile is very important for fat absorption and breaking down fat. And so these patients can end up getting malnourished. And that's why this little baby has what? They have uh, like lots of muscle wasting happening, right? You can see how thin their arms and legs are. But what about their abdomen? Why does their abdomen look like that? What is that? It's distended from, I guess, maybe buildup or... Buildup of what, CT? Gastric acid and gas in general, maybe? It is... What? What do you think, Angelica? Is it due to the malabsorption, um, so like malnutrition? Because like lots yeah. of different 
how nutrition looked like that. This is about to come full circle. Are you guys ready? I'm about to blow your minds. This is ascites because they're having malabsorption, malnutrition, their albumin is low and they have no oncotic pressure and all that fluid gets pushed out into their abdomen, right? Also, this is a really, really good example of a barrel chest. All right, let's move on. So these patients will actually, not just the exocrine function of their pancreas is like at play, but uh, they'll eventually also lose endocrine function of their pancreas and they'll become a diabetic, okay? And so um, the other thing, obviously, this is respiratory unit. We're talking about respiratory disorders. All of these other things with the GI system happen in cystic fibrosis. Again, it's ultimately due to like the sodium chloride channel dysfunction. But the big issue here is you have hyper thick, super, super thick mucus being secreted in your bronchi, and that causes bronchial obstruction. All right. So you'll have um, not only can you not get rid of that and it's causing obstruction and causing like symptoms of emphysema, but that's then getting infected, right? And so you have this chronic pneumonia that you're constantly battling and um, the risk of infection is very high in these patients. So I just kind of talked through all of this integumentary sweat, that's supposed to say sweat, not seat. Seat doesn't make any sense. Tears, saliva are all abnormally salty. Again, they used to diagnose this by kissing and like tasting the salt concentration. Now we do something called a sweat chloride test. No one's ever going to ask you to kiss an infant and then lick your lips to see how salty that tasted. That's good. At least we've made some progress, right? Um, all right. Look at this. They can even have reproductive issues because their vaginal cervical mu mucus is so thick that like semen can't get transmitted into their like you know past their cervix and into their uterus and then in a male you could have decrease your absence sperm isn't that interesting so sweat fluoride test normal is 40 mil equivalents per liter i believe for cystic fibrosis it's got to be like 60 mil equivalents per liter or higher um so it's pretty dang salty all right all of that salt loss, by the way, that sodium and chloride loss that's like leaving from their sweat and, you know, other areas, um, that causes hyponatremia. And so you're going to teach these patients to like always be eating foods that are a little bit high in sodium and like just kind of keeping stuff around like pretzels are a good option and nothing that's too fatty. But um, really, you know what? I don't think that you really care about fat either because they have a lot of malabsorption issues. Okay, what would their stool look like? After they pass that first meconium, what do you think their stool's gonna look like? I'm gonna go over, but I'm gonna keep rolling, okay? Would it be like super thick and um, like, like kind of mucusy? Mm -hmm. They may have a lot of issues with constipation because it's gonna be hard for them to get enough fluid. Um, to pass stool, you know? It, yeah, so that can happen for sure. Sputum culture insensitivity, that is to detect infection, just like always. That's really the only thing we're looking at. What would blood glucose levels do? Why are we looking at that? If they're, if they're then they can, right. yeah. That's right. Uh, that would be like indicating pancreatic dysfunction and they're not, they're losing some of that exocrine function in the pancreas. Um, chest x-ray, abdominal x-ray, that can detect meconium ileus. 
we have some really good friends who, um, you know, who, have you guys ever eaten at Cuppies and Joe's? Cuppies and Joe, I think it's just singular. That's a cupcake bakery down on 23rd Street in Oklahoma City. And um, he was a barista. She was a baker. Love it. You know, like 50th site. They ended up getting married and they had a little baby. Um, like while she was pregnant, she started having some abdominal pain. They ended up doing an ultrasound of the baby and they were like, your baby has an abdominal tumor. And as soon as the baby's born, we're going to have to do surgery to get the, whatever tumor this is. They actually thought it was Wilms tumor. And so they were like prepping them. They live in Colorado. Um, and so, yeah, they thought like our baby has cancer. And as soon as they come out, they're going to remove the tumor. The baby was born and they realized uh, that they took it to, straight to surgery and um, ended up doing a uh, colectomy because it was meconium ileus actually. And the baby was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis as a result from that after some genetic testing confirmed that. So um, that was kind of an interesting outcome. And then, you know, the baby had like an ostomy with a mucus fistula that they eventually reconnected. Now she has a G-tube. She's, uh, they just visited us last week. She's three and they have to sprinkle pancreatic enzymes on her food with any, anytime she eats. And the reason is because if they miss those pancreatic enzymes, she's not going to get any of the nutrients from that food. When Meryl was, I believe too, she was, she had to eat like 2,600 calories a day because they were like, she's only absorbing about a third of the calories that she's getting. And so to keep her from like failure to thrive area, they were needing to give her 2,600 calories a day. And that was almost exclusively G2 feedings. So Meryl had a, a really hard time and still isn't super interested in food because for the first two years of her life, her only way of getting any kind of nutrition was through a G-tube. So she just doesn't have that same like um, desire to eat and like oral fixation that normally develops in kids who, you know, do um, eat orally right away. They'll eventually need either hypoglycemic agents orally like metformin and then eventually they may need insulin sorry guys ruby's tired too um i've included this picture because this is like one day worth of medications for a kid with cystic fibrosis if you can believe it this is just one day they typically go through 60 pancreatic enzymes in a day. Um, and so they have bronchodilators. They have their Dornase Alpha that thins their respiratory secretions. They get immunized, of course, not every day. Um, they may or may not be on antibiotics at any given point, especially to like prevent um, infections. But also if they've been in a high risk situation, they may actually get them to, uh, or if they have like a respiratory virus, they may get antibiotics to just um, prevent a bacterial infection that would land them in the hospital. Um, what questions do you have about this slide? So what exactly, that, go ahead. Sorry. No. Is that big pile of medicine right there? Those are pancreatic enzymes? The blue and red pills. Yeah. And so in a baby who can't actually like take a pill, cause that does take a while you'll actually open those and sprinkle the enzymes on like a little bit of applesauce or peanut butter or whatever it is that the baby's about to eat. Yeah. Okay. 
Thank you. Meryl hates applesauce because that's her way of getting her pancreatic enzymes. So they only do applesauce if she's getting pancreatic enzymes. And then like, she just like cannot handle it otherwise. So yeah, um, the other, you know, I put respiratory therapy and dietetic consult because that is truly, this really, really requires an entire interdis interdisciplinary team to really maximize care. Otherwise they're gonna have GI issues they're going to have malabsorption issues. They're going to have chronic respiratory issues. So this, the most effective thing that you could do as a parent is to get them set up with like, not just a doctor that specializes in CF, but a clinic where they can meet with a nurse, a doctor, a respiratory therapist, a pulmonologist, and a dietitian all in the same visit on the same day so that they're not having to go back and, you know, be seen all the time. Um, these patients will need breathing treatments. Um, very frequently, several times throughout the day. And then usually they'll do their breathing treatments, which is like albuterol. And then they may also get nebulized saline. And that nebulized saline, um, they also get like that Dornase Alpha because that can thin their respiratory secretions. After they get the breathing treatments, they'll also get chest physiotherapy. Does anyone know what that is? Who's seen chest physiotherapy done? What is it, Caitlin? So they'll either do percussion or they'll put a vest on and that vest vibrates their chest. Yeah, I'll just play this cute little video. I don't think you guys will be able to hear the sound. So that is like vibrating her, look at her, can you hear her? She's like, wah, and then, so cute, right? So she's getting a nebulizer and on top of that nebulizer, that chest physiotherapy, that vest is like uh, vibrating so that it's breaking up secretions on her bronchial wall so that she can then expectorate them. The other part of chest physiotherapy, you always want to do this before meals. Number one, that is going to improve their gas exchange and like, you know, help them breathe so that they can intake more nutrients. But also you don't want to do this like an hour after meals because then they're just going to throw up everything that they ate, right? Um, here is another postural drainage. This is another type of chest PT. And this is Meryl. This is my her in my living room when she was just two and she came to visit me. Um, but her dad is using um, this little percussion drum and he would just like, I, you know, like what you do is you hold it and then you're just like beating on their little chest and it doesn't hurt them. Look at her, she doesn't look like she's in pain at all, right? This picture looks like it's really, you know, uncomfortable for this kid, but just, I wanted to show you that it's not actually painful. Um, okay, so, and then that's gonna help them um, get those secretions broken off of their bronchial walls so that they can then cough them up and out or swallow them if they're a little baby. Um, nutrition counseling is, so important. They have to have adequate hydration or they're going to get like ileus. Um, they have to have adequate salt intake because they're going to have a lot of issues with hyponatremia and um, high calorie, high protein. That's really what we're going to teach. Okay. Um, we are going to maximize that calorie intake in every single bite of food if we can. Um, okay. Question.
Hi, my name is Shannon Moore. I'm your GTA for this semester. I'm going to talk to you today about asthma in my first podcast, and then I'll do an additional podcast over the core measures. Asthma is an inflammation of the small airways, the bronchioles. This inflammation causes the normal function of the airways to become overreactive, which leads to an excessive production of mucus, mucosal swelling, and muscle contraction. Remember, the muscle band is on the outside of the bronchioles, so the bronchioles contracts, narrowing the airway during an asthma attack. More mucus is produced, which plugs the bronchioles, and this makes the passage of air more difficult. There are several things that can trigger an asthma attack. Some of them, them include cigarette smoking, pet dander, pollens, dust or dust mites, strong smells such as cleaning agents or cologne, exercise, or weather. What signs and symptoms would you expect your patient to exhibit during an asthma attack? You may see your patient coughing, they may have wheezing, they may complain of chest tightness, or have difficulty breathing or shortness of breath. So how would you expect to see an asthma attack treated? A short-acting beta agonist, or a SABA, is prescribed, which is albuterol. Albuterol produces rapid bronchodilation, and it also binds to the beta-2 adrenergic receptors on bronchial smooth, smooth muscle. There's also corticosteroids. They inhibit bronchoconstriction and reduce inflammation. Those are the two drugs of choice in an acute asthma attack. Asthmatics also take medications for maintenance. Some of those medications include inhaled corticosteroids. They relieve airway inflammation and swelling. Uh, Pomacord and Flovent are two examples of those drugs. Then there's also a long-acting inhaled beta agonist. Those are Cerevent and Foradil. They should not be used in an acute asthma exacerbation, and they act very similar as the Saba does, but they do not act rapid, so again, they should not be used as a rescue drug. There's also leukotriene modifiers. Those include Singular and Acolyte. They don't have an anti-inflammatory effect, and they block the action of leukotrienes, which are produced by mast cells. They prevent the leukotrienes from having an effect in the bronchial tubes. Last one is anticholinergics, that is atrovent, that causes relaxation and opening of the airways. Now I found some interesting statistics on asthma that I'd like to share with you. Did you know that asthma is the leading cause of serious chronic illness of children? 6.8 million children under the age of 18 have asthma. Asthma is the third leading cause of hospitalization among children under the age of 15. It is also the most common cause of school absenteeism. 12.8 million school days were missed due to the disease in 2003. Asthma cannot be cured, but it can be controlled. I was able to find these statistics from the American Lung Association. With these numbers in mind, the NHLBI, or the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, established a set of guidelines to treat asthma and to help improve these statistics. The Joint Commission has made children's asthma a core measure. Core measures will be discussed further in the next podcast. Thanks for your time. Hi, this is Shannon again. I'm back to speak with you about core measures. A core measure is a performance measurement activity developed by the Joint Commission in collaboration with the Centers for Medicaid Medicare Services. These two regulatory bodies collaborated to align measures common to both organizations. Core measures are intended to improve the quality of care provided to the public. The interventions are based on evidence and are the most effective course of treatment. Currently, there are eight core measures. They include Surgical Care Improvement Project, 
children's asthma care, acute myocardial infarction, pregnancy and related conditions, heart failure, pneumonia, hospital-based inpatient psychiatric services, and hospital outpatient measures. In hospitals, the quality department tracks the data for the measures. The bedside nurse plays an integral, integral role in the success of the core measures. The bedside nurses are the ones who implement the interventions and ensure the physicians are ordering the appropriate interventions. The core measures are similar to a protocol in that there are certain things that the physicians have to order in order to be compliant with the measures. Take children's asthma, for instance. The use of short-acting relievers, corticosteroids, and the patient's asthma action plan are measured. Relievers and corticosteroids are indicated in asthma exacerbation. An asthma action plan is to be completed by the discharging physician and sent home with the family. The action plan spells out for the family what interventions they need to take if their child is exhibiting certain symptoms. The stages are classified as mild, moderate, and severe. Each stage includes the symptoms the patient may exhibit and tells the family how to treat, treat it. The asthma action plan must include the following information. Follow-up, which has to include the practitioner or clinic name. The time frame that they need to follow up, like follow up within three to four days with your PCP, an or an appointment date, and a phone number to call. There also has to be the use of controllers on there and the use of relievers, specific environmental control, and a signature and date showing a copy was given to the patient or caregiver. For example, now this is, I'm going to be talking again about the asthma action plan and how it can help the families if they're at home and the child has a cough and mild wheezing. The family will go to the asthma action plan. It'll say if your child has a cough and mild wheezing then you need to do this. It will tell them to administer a short-acting beta agonist or albuterol. If there's not any improvement then they need to begin treatment with the oral corticosteroid. The intention of the action plan is to decrease the number of visits to the ED, hospital admissions, and missed days of school for the patient. Hopefully it will also have an impact on the number of days parents miss for work. With this example, I hope that you can see the role the bedside nurse plays in core measures. They are not just a quality department initiative or something administrators develop to create more work for the staff. The intent of the core measure measures is to improve patient outcomes. Now I have a case study that we're going to discuss. Let's say you are a nurse working on a pediatric medical unit. You are assigned a seven-year-old patient admitted for asthma exacerbation. The patient has been on the unit for 12 hours. You are familiar with the core measure for children's asthma. Question one. As you are checking the orders, what is one medication you would expect your patient to receive for the treatment of asthma exacerbation? A, genomycin, B, albuterol, C, atrovent, or D, singular? B. Albuterol is the correct answer. Again, albuterol, or a short-acting beta agonist, is indicated in the treatment of acute asthma exacerbation because of the rapid action that it has. Question 2. What is another medication you would expect to see your patient taking to treat the exacerbation? A. A corticosteroid. B. Wellbutrin. C. Digoxin. Or D. Theophylline. A. Corticosteroid is the correct answer. Remember that corticosteroids inhibit bronchoconstriction and they reduce inflammation. Question 3. You notice the patient is on albuterol but has not been prescribed a corticosteroid. 
What should your four first course of action be? Question one, call a code. I'm sorry, option A, call a code. B, notify the physician, inform him of the core measures and the benefit corticosteroids have on treating asthma exacerbations. C, notify your charge nurse. Or D, call the pharmacy to see if they can send you a dose of the steroid. Correct answer is B, notify the physician, inform him of the core measures and the benefit corticosteroids have on treating asthma exacerbations. Once you obtain the order, then you would call the pharmacy. Question four. You get the order for the corticosteroid. During your shift, you wean your patient to room air. His oxygen saturations have fluctuated between 91% and 94% on room air. He has mild wheezes. You report to the next shift that he will be discharged home. Based on your knowledge of the children's asthma core measure, you know your patient should be discharged with A, an asthma action plan and a copy on the chart, B, a thank you card for visiting your facility, C, a gift certificate to the gift shop, or D, an asthma action plan. The correct answer is A, an asthma action plan and a copy should be placed on the chart. Question five, on the asthma action plan, you know there must be at least three items included in order for the facility to receive credit for the measure. They are, option A, follow up, which has to include the practitioner or clinic name, the time frame or appointment date, phone number to call, use of controllers, use of relievers, specific environmental control, and a signature and date showing a copy was given to the patient or caregiver. Option B, follow-up that most, must include a phone number to call within a certain time frame and use of relievers. Option C, follow-up that can include the name of the practitioner or clinic, phone number, control of the environmental triggers. Option D, a follow-up that can include a time frame to call to schedule a follow-up appointment, a phone number to call if the physician knows it, and a signature showing the physician gave a copy to the patient or caregiver. Option A is the correct answer. Every asthma action plan must have a follow-up on it, which has to include the practitioner or clinic name, a time frame or an appointment date, and a phone number for them to call, use of controllers, use of relievers, specific environmental control, and a signature and date showing that a copy was given to the patient or to the caregiver. This concludes this podcast over core measures. I hope you guys find this information beneficial. And once you begin practicing on your own and hear about core measures, I hope that some of this information will resurface and you will see the benefit that bedside nurses have in core measures. Thanks. Bye.